Welcome to the Lecture Library Live. Recordings from the literary events hosted by the Stonehill College English Department and Creative Writing Program in partnership with the Chet Ramo Literary Series. The introduction is by Professor Amra Brooks, Director of the Creative Writing Program at Stonehill College. to the Chet Remo Literary Series. I'm Amra Brooks. I'm an associate professor in the English department and the director of the creative writing program here at Stonehill College. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that Stonehill is located on the unceded ancestral land of the Wampanoag people who cared for this land for thousands of years before settler colonialism. With deep gratitude, we seek to honor the stolen land where we live and work today. Tonight is a special night because it marks the 20th year of the Chet Remo Literary Series. The series was started to honor Chet, one of the college's most beloved faculty members who authored 14 books about science and nature and was a Boston Globe columnist for over 20 years. Tonight's event is sponsored by the Center for the Study of Race, Ethnicity, and Social Justice, the Catholic Jewish Dialogue Committee, the Office of the Provost, and the May School of Arts and Sciences. Tonight is a special night because it marks the 20th year of the Chet Remo Literary Series. The series was started to honor Chet, one of the college's most beloved faculty members who authored 14 books about science and nature and was a Boston Globe columnist for over 20 years. Tonight's event is sponsored by the Center for the Study of Race, Ethnicity and Social Justice, the Catholic Jewish Dialogue Committee, the Office of the Provost and the May School of Arts and Sciences. I am so pleased to introduce and welcome Roske this evening. He is the author of four books of poetry, Against Which, Bringing the Shovel Down, Beholding, and Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, winner of the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award and the 2016 Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. His new poem, Beholding, was released from the University of Pittsburgh Press in September, 2020. His collection of essays, The Book of Delights, was released by Algonquin Books in 2019. Ross is a founding board member of the Bloomington Community Orchard, a nonprofit free fruit for all food justice and joy project. He has received fellowships from Cave Canem, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and the Guggenheim Foundation. Ross teaches at Indiana University. Every time I read about Ross Gay or talk to somebody about his work, people always say, we need him now more than ever. And this has always been true. When Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude came out, his poems invited us to contemplate the concept of gratitude in the face of loss, change, and death. In the po poem Spoon, grief and remembrance is conjured by a spoon that belonged to a dear friend who was murdered. The spoon lets Don Belton come to life before our eyes. Gay lets us see him as he celebrates, walks, dreams, dances, sings, and flies. Don's body and voice so present in the poem, Gay writes, when he said, at breakfast, I'm a survivor, I survived, this 53-year-old gay Black man to which we did a little dance, listing the myriad bullets he's dodged, swirling the biscuits in their oily syrup, Don occasionally poking his fork in the air for emphasis, laughing and sipping coffee, shaking our heads like we couldn't believe it. This scene almost unbearable knowing that his life was taken shortly after, but the gratitude so palpable through Gay's record of attention. When the Book of Delights came out, he asked us to shift our awareness to the presence of delight in our bodies by keeping a daily record of what delight feels like, often alongside the grief, trauma, and violence experienced as a Black man in our country. He takes a magnified lens to the small ways we care or are cared for. 
Delight for gay often comes in the form of a web, a gossamer thread or woven filament connecting us to each other, the way two people help each other carry a single plastic bag as they walk down the street, or the tomato plant he gently carries on a flight, which everyone on board starts to care for as well. His parenthetical noting of delight in the text is part of me now. This week, I hear it when I go for a walk through the trees and breathe, remembering a time when I could not breathe easily, and I hear him delight these little parentheticals. When I first got Ross's latest book, Beholding, a book-length poem, I read the acknowledgments first for some reason, and I found myself teary at the end of it. I hadn't even started to read the actual book yet, and I was already bowled over by the recognition of those he is in conversation with. Again, this web that links him to those that inspired and make an appearance in the poem. I immediately thought of Fred Moten and his book, The Undercommons, the way he expands the concept of study to include a social life, not something that happens in isolation in a carol of the library. This acknowledgement and reminder of community was especially moving during a time of intense isolation. Beholding comes to us during a pandemic, and I find myself thinking again of that phrase, we need him now more than ever. As I read this book, Gay's voice finds a place in my head with a new reminder, to breathe. After he writes about a photo of a woman and her daughter falling in a 1975 fire escape collapse that takes your breath away, he writes, but let's breathe first. We're always holding our breath. Let's stop and breathe, you and me. A reminder he repeats at other necessary times in the poem. I watched the documentary about basketball player Jules Irvin, known as the doc that Gay recommends at the beginning of the book. The film opens with a clip of Isaiah Thomas talking about being a kid at camp and seeing the doc do one of his famous never-ending leaps. And Thomas says, quote, it was like he stopped mid-air and said to the kids, come on, we're in the air now. The doc was airborne for so long, he could just turn to you and invite you to come up there with him. Together, you could pause, look around, fly for a while. There are so many moments in Beholding where Gay asks us to do just that, where we pause to behold, where we breathe, where we fly. Please join me in welcoming Ross Gay tonight. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. Jesus Christ, that was <laughs> that was just lovely. Um, yeah, God, yeah. It feels you know every time someone beholds the work like that, it feels like really like being you know being held, like being loved. So I just want to um, really say thank you so much for for that. Um, and it makes me think I was gonna I wasn't gonna read from Beholding I was gonna, but it makes me think oh you know what you made me think I want to read a little bit from Beholding, um, so a little bit for those of you who are um, any you know you might not know who Dr J is so I'm just gonna tell you sometimes I think that's a, a generational um, <laughs> malfeasance <laughs> sometimes sometimes you know whatever you know basketball person or whatever so Dr J was about, actually. Let me just read, I have an about Dr. J at the beginning of this book, about Dr. J for um, those of you who may not know. <clears throat> it has occurred to me with much sorrow, though I'm getting over it, that not everyone knows who Dr. J, Julius Irving is. I have learned this over the years as I was trying to write this poem and would occasionally be talking to, shall we say, millennials about what I was working on. Oh, I'd say vaguely, I'm working on a poem about Dr. J. In these encounters, I realized that many, many of these otherwise decent people had never heard of the doctor, though LeBron James et a few owl, they had mostly all heard of. This strikes me as a generational ignorance, not a moral one. And for that reason, I begrudge these people, or you, if you are one of them, not at all. For I have never read Harry Potter, etc., 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 and feel at least in the realm of being a decent person. Anyhow, for this poem to be its most, you know, whatever a poem might be to you, 
it might behoove you to do a teeny bit of research on Dr. J. You can do that after the reading. You could just look on any of the video algorithm machines or watch The Doctor, a Dr. J documentary, narr documentary narrated by Chuck D. Or better yet, you could just ask an elder, which incidentally, in addition to being someone who knows who Dr. J is, is a kind of tree or shrub from whose ripe blackberries you can make a potent antiviral medicine, useful prophylactically and after infection. And this is beholding. And I always like to read um, the bound in gratitude at the beginning. Also, I want to say I read the acknowledgments first always. <laughs> uh, it's like, you know, all of this sort of like after, after matter, under matter, post matter, that's always the most interesting stuff to me. Like I'm always like, okay. And then I read the poem. Bound in gratitude. This poem does not exist without the work and ideas and words of many, many writers and thinkers. Among them, Amiri Baraka, Garnett Cadigan, Toy Derricott, Adeseli Skirmai, Saidia Hartman, Alan Iverson, Fred Moten, Kevin Kwashi, Patrick Rosal, Christina Sharp, and Susan Sante, by which I mean the work and thinking and care and words are indebted to them and are sometimes actually there. Beholding. And there's an epigraph that says, to be held, to behold. And that's from Christina Sharp's book. Um, in the wake. Beholding, April 4th, 2015, till today. You might have noticed there's nowhere to go. You know what? I, I changed this poem and it starts, it, it used to start with a capital Y, you might have noticed, but now it's a lowercase n, lowercase a n d. And you might have noticed there's nowhere to go. The wind cutting little eddies at your collarbones and behind your ear. As Dr. J drives from the foul line extended to the baseline, defended valiantly by Mark Landsberger, who in this poem, despite the doofy urge to make him so, is not allegorical, but is rather simply a hardworking journeyman ball player with decent athleticism and size and a floppy mop of dusty blonde hair who got caught up in the gust, sliding his size 16s quick so that Doc after catching the ball at the elbow and taking one hard dribble toward the baseline where the dunk would usually commence, could not access the paint or the lane or the key, which is what we call the area nearest the goal, which in this case is an iron hole drawn in space and therefore implies a window. Though a key makes it also a door that Landsberger, it seemed, was trying to keep shut. And so Doc left. He left his feet which means more or less jumping with the ball with nowhere to go, and which we're warned against by coaches from day one for the ensuing requisite stupid pass, or more simply though no less stupid travel, also called walking, which the leaping often leads to. Keep your feet! Again and again, which makes the leaping, leaving your feet, sound sacrificial. The way in certain places, certain countries or countries inside of countries, you must leave by foot with nowhere to go, which there is. And Doc, you should note, after the one dribble clasps the ball with only his right hand, without once at all in any shape or form using the left, which among other things, friends, differentiates this move from all the descendant moves, Kevin Durant, Dwayne Wade, Steph, and Giannis, and Harden, and Kawhi. Yes, Bron, Bron, too, I shall not be moved. And using only one hand, which is amazing, but not yet miraculous, more a physical and therefore genetic fact, thanks Ma and Pa Irving, Doc's hand becomes an octopus, gripping the ball, nothing like prey. And with that ball snugged in his mitt, Doc maybe kind of sort of thought something like, I'm going to put this schmuck, the schmuck in this case being Landsberger, though do not please revert to a simplistic allegorization of the journeyman, which word I repeat advisedly, on a poster. Though schmuck is a word I'd be surprised. You know, here's the thing. You know, Dr. J played college ball at UMass up there in, in your region. The other thing is that I curse a player who played for the Boston Celtics. Um, I curse him a few times, for which I apologize. But don't worry about it. That's just, you know, it's personal. You'll hear. Though schmuck is a word I'd be surprised to hear Doc say, 
and the word posterize, common usage, posterizes as, you might be thinking is a bit of an anachronism in this poem, in this move, which ostensibly occurred in the 1980 NBA Finals, though we all know that nothing happens only when it happens. We all know nothing happens only when it happens. Emerging more in the epic, which in the NBA lasts three to five years, following Doc's retirement, Nick and Jordan, Hakeem the Dream and Clyde the Glide, Barkley the Glove, and yo, remember Sean Kemp? Though Doc probably thought it anyway, visionary that he was, when will they verb what I keep doing to these schmucks, especially Bill fucking Waltons? Driving from the foul line extended toward the baseline as the unsuspecting Landsberger, who did a fine job of shuffling his size 16s and not holding, keeping Irving from the key, and who must for a scant and fleeting moment have felt a degree of pride when Doc, after the hard dribble right, left his feet with nowhere to go. Billy Cunningham on the sideline, his hands on his hips, his sport coat thrown open, a few strands of hair stuck to his moist pink brow and almost smiling as Doc began sailing out of bounds over the baseline. And Landsberger, a solid leaper, skied and foreclosed the possibility of Doc sneaking a shot in this side of the basket, by which I mean dunking probably quite hard, by putting his hand against the backboard, a big door swinging shut, at which fine and commendable defensive effort, Irving simply decided in the air to knock on other doors by soaring more. Have you ever decided anything in the air? I'm gonna show you this picture, because it's in the book. Have you ever decided anything in the air? Turtling his head into his chest so as not to bash it against the backboard, flying like that, in fact, now behind the basket and backboard, where Kareem, a good help defender, uh, wait a sec, that's wrong. Kareem, one of the best defenders of all time, five-time NBA all-defensive first team, six-time NBA all-defensive second team, six MVPs, sorry, MJ, not to mention, which means it requires mentioning, Kareem was one of those Negroes they changed the rules for banning the dunk for years from the NCAA, which is to say banning emphatic and exquisite flights, which maybe explains the wise and sort of tired eyes of Kareem, one of the best basketball players of all time, who had slid to also cut off the baseline, which he accomplished, but found himself now looking into the sky directly out of bounds, which his own suddenly unfamiliar body must have been telling him was so weird this is so weird. Looking and looking like this, his hands extended timidly, a silver maple's branches creaking and swaying in a hurricane, for Doc was amongst the trees, as we call the big men, like Kareem, the trees, who reside mostly in the lane or in the key, growing there, rooting, the thousands of fans now holding their breath, looking into the sky, some of their hands reach out instinctively toward their neighbors beside them, or their palms instinctively laying on the shoulders before them, or forearms shoved gently into a wrist or hip beside them. A few arms of strangers suddenly locked as if going for a stroll, the whole of the spectrum become a kind of dew-glistened web shivering its gems in the gales as Irving went higher and now began to extend his right hand in a precise arc beginning precisely above his head, painting a broad and precise circle, not unlike Leonardo's Vitruvian man in his hula hoop of perfect proportions, if that little naked man wasn't little or naked and was palming a basketball and was flying through the trees. And I feel myself again and again with my arm making the perfectly impossible circle again and again, as I watch this clip on YouTube frame by frame, clumsily on a computer with gummy keys and a post-it note covering the eye hole scrawled discipline on April 5th, 2015 at 1.48 a.m. again and again thinking, what am I looking at? What am I seeing? Back to the first long step toward the baseline, 
the slight contact with Landsberger, the leap, again, long step, contact leap, again, long step, contact leap, again, long step, contact leap. And I noticed this time in the background, which is granted hazy, this being old footage and my eyes a bit roomy for the now nearly two hours studying this clip, I noticed at about the foul line, Silk, AKA Jamal Wilkes, who for the record, Coach Wooden on the record said was his best player ever at UCLA. Not Kareem and oh fuck forever Bill Walton. And it's worthwhile to spend at least a moment with the name Silk, among the finest basketball nicknames, implying an ease and fluidity of movement implying a difficult thing, a painful thing made to look easy, a fiber prized for its softness, its smoothness on the skin, gathered from captive worms fed mulberry leaves. My court name was Beast, for what it's worth. And after a summer league game on the court at 10th and Lombard, where those in the know would slide through a gap in the grimace of the wrought iron gate to get in, a court that would in time be shut down in that most heinous of ways, removing the rims, the backboards lonely as gravestones, because of complaints to the city from the condo owners across the street who did not want to hear, God forbid, all that Negro gathering and celebration and care and delight every goddamn weekend morning, all that frolic and tumult, all that flight. Why can't they just go someplace else? A slightly older opponent told me, holding my hand and shoulder and pulling me close, he was holding me. Beneath the stately oaks overhanging the court, looking kindly down on us and time to time blocking a high arcing shot and wishing a leaf or two upon the ex-ballers on the sideline, reading the Philadelphia Inquirer, sipping coffee, debating and laughing or acting stupid like reps making calls. Oh yeah, he walked his ass off the oaks dappling the old heads in their discourse. That is the best line of verse I will ever write. His shirt soaked through, staring at me to be sure I was listening, which I was then as now. You ain't no beast. You ain't no beast, you're a man, you hear me? And I noticed Silk's right leg and hip twitch before relaxing with what might have been the body's, aw, shit. Though if you look closely, again and again, in a certain kind of way, again and again, I'll pause there. Um, so yeah, I'm leaving you hanging. We're in the air, <laughs> we're in the air. Um, so yeah, that's that beholding book. That's a little bit of beholding. And I'm gonna read to you a couple other poems and then um, some, uh, a couple essays and then maybe we talk a little bit. This is called To the Fig Tree on Ninth and Christian. And this is um, actually the first poem in my, in catalog of unabashed gratitude. And the only thing you know, need to know is that this is like kind of, you know, people will ask me this question, like do your poems come from, you know, occasions in your life or events? And often they do. And this poem came from, I was walking down Christian Street in Philadelphia, not exactly at Ninth and Christian, which people have corrected me on. You know, some people have gone to the site and they're like, hey Ross, it's actually between Ninth and 10th. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> and I have, um, but I was walking down the street and there's, I on this way to a diner in Philly called Sabrina's. I love it. And there was a tree and I don't know if I knew that it was there before I had this encounter, but it was a basically a 25, 30 foot tall fig tree that was just perfectly located. You know, those trees don't grow easily. You know, you have to do some stuff for them to grow in the North. And it was so abundant that someone was, you know, the woman who lived in the building was sweeping up the figs off of the sidewalk because they were dropping so much fruit, you know, and, and there were yellow jackets and people were going to fall and this and that. Um, to me, of course, I was like, this is bananas. I've never, I've never um, seen that. So this is, that's kind of the occasion of the poem. To the fig tree on Ninth and Christian. Tumbling through the city in my mind without once looking up the racket in the lug work, probably rehearsing some stupid thing I did or said, some crime or other. The city, they say, is a lonely place until, yes, the sound of sweeping and a woman, yes, 
with a broom beneath which you are now to the canopy of a fig, its arms pulling the September sun to it. And she has a hose too. And so works hard, rinsing and scrubbing the sidewalk, lest some poor sod slip on the silk of a fig and break his hip and not probably reach over to gobble up the perpetrator. The light catches the veins in her hands when I ask about the tree. They flutter in the air and she says, take as much as you can, please help me. So I load my pockets and mouth. When she points to the stepladder against the wall to mean more, but I was without a sack, so my meager plunder would have to suffice. And an old woman whom gravity was pulling into the earth loosed one from a low-slung branch and its eye wept like hers, which she cleaved, with which she dabbed with a kerchief as she cleaved the fig with what remained of her teeth. And soon there were eight or nine people gathered beneath the tree, looking into it like a constellation, pointing, do you see it? And I am tall and so good for such things. And a bald man even told me so when I grabbed three or four for him, reaching into the giddy throngs of yellow jackets, sugar stone, which he only pointed to smiling and rubbing his stomach. I mean, he was really rubbing his stomach. Like there was a baby in there. It was hot. His head shone while he offered recipes to the group using words which I couldn't understand. And besides, I was a little tipsy on the dance of the velvety heart rolling in my mouth, pulling me down and down into the oldest countries of my body, where I ate my first fig from the hand of a man who escaped his country by swimming through the night and maybe never said more than five words to me at once, but gave me figs. And a man on his way to work hops twice to reach at last his fig, which he smiles at and calls baby. Come here, baby, he says, and blows a kiss to the tree, which everyone knows cannot grow this far north, being Mediterranean and favoring the rocky sun-baked soils of Jordan and Sicily. But no one told the fig tree or the immigrant. There is a way the fig tree grows in groves. It wants, it seems, to hold us. Yes, I am anthropomorphizing, goddammit. I have twice in the last 30 seconds rubbed my sweaty form into someone else's sweaty shoulder, gleeful, eating out of each other's hands on Christian Street in Philadelphia, a city like most which has murdered its own people. This is true. We are feeding each other from a tree at the corner of Christian and Ninth, strangers maybe never again. And let me read one more of these poems from this book. Um, this poem is called Ode to Buttoning and Unbuttoning My Shirt. And there's a line in here, I say, there's a line where I say, this is not something to be taken lightly. And in a way, that's the kind of thing, there's a poet named Nazem Hikmet, um, Turkish poet who was probably most busy writing in the, I think probably 30s, 40s, 50s. But he was incarcerated for a long time. He was a communist and he was locked up for a long time. And um, he would write these poems and there's such beautiful sort of odes, you know, devotional poems and maybe to his wife or to the outside. And he would say things like, this is not something to be taken lightly. So in a way I'm sort of calling, you know, bringing Nazem Hikmet into the room when I say this. I'm always, the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, everyone's just talking through me, you know. Oh, there's Jerry Stern. Oh, oh, wow, there's, you know, June Jordan. There's Sharon Olds. There's, there's Uncle Walt. Ode to buttoning and unbuttoning my shirt. No one knew, or at least I didn't know they knew what the thin discs threaded here on my shirt might give me in terms of joy. This is not something to be taken lightly. The gift of buttoning one's shirt slowly, top to bottom or bottom to top, or sometimes the buttons will be on the other side. And I'm a woman that morning, slipping the glass through its slot. I tread differently that day, or some of it anyway. My conversations are different and the car bombs slicing the air and the people in it for a quarter mile and the honeybees legs furred with pollen mean another thing to me than on the other days, which too have been drizzled in this simplest of joys. In this world of spaceships and subatomic this and that, two, maybe three times a day, some days, I have the distinct pleasure of slowly untethering the one side from the other, which is like unbuckling a stack of vertebrae with delicacy 
for I must only use the tips of my fingers, which, with which I will one day close my mother's eyes. This is as delicate as we can be in this life, practicing like this, giving the raft of our hands to the clumsy spider and blowing soft until she lifts her damp heft and crawls off. Like this, we practice pushing the seed into the earth like this, first in the morning, then at night, we practice sliding the bones home. And um, let me read you a couple of these essays. This first essay I'm gonna to read to you is, um, it's called um, The High Five from Strangers, Etc." So for those of you who don't know um, this book, it's called The Book of Delights, um, it's a little book called The Book of Delights. And um, I was walking home one day, I was actually at an, at an artist residency. Um, I was, you know, I was, <laughs> I was in an artist residency in a castle in Italy where they cooked for me. And I was walking home from my little espresso, from my coffee, you know, downtown. And I was walking up to like flowers. And you go figure, I was about to go get delicious lunch cooked for me in the castle where they were putting me up. I was delighted. And, um, but, but I thought, oh, I should write a little moment about this experience of delight. And then boom, boom, immediately I had the feeling that I should, it was immediately, it wasn't me. It was sort of given to me to write an essay about being delighted, about something that delights me every day for a year. Um, and so that's what this is. I decided to do that. It was probably a month before my birthday, which is August 1st. So I just figured, okay, I'll do that. And I gave myself three rules. One was do it every day, which I didn't exactly do, but I did it most days and write them by hand and write them quickly. So I drafted them all in 30 minutes. And, you know, I think I did that to kind of lower the, the resistance to any kind of, you know, daily project, which I kind of could have. Um, so anyway, they're just like notes, you know, they're just sort of, they have a kind of diaristic feeling, I think, sometimes to them, but they're daily, they're very daily. And the titles are things like the high five from strangers, etc. Today, I was wandering the square of the small Indiana town where I gave a poetry reading at the local college, a feature of the small town Midwest, a city hallish building in the center, always with some sad statue trumpeting one war or another. This one had a guy in one of those not very protective looking hats they called a helmet during World War I. He's carrying, naturally, a gun. Jenna Osman's book, Public Figures, alerted me to the ubiquity of the gun, the weapon, in the hands of our statue. A delight I wish to now imagine and even impose, given as beneficent dictatorship of one's own life anyway, is a delight. All new statues must have in their hands flowers, or shovels, or babies, or seedlings, or chinchillas. We could go on like this for a while. But never again, never ever, guns. I decree it, and I also decree the removal of the already extant gun. Let the emptiness our war heroes carry be the metaphor for a while. As I was finishing circling the square, I passed a storefront garage with huge Make America Great Again signs. It was a foreign auto repair shop, and inside were mostly Toyotas and Hondas. I settled into the coffee shop, took my notebooks out, and I was reading over these delights, transcribing them into the computer. And while I was working, headphones on, swaying to the new De La Soul record, Delight, which deserves its own entry, I noticed a white girl, she looked 15, but could have been, I suppose, a college student, standing next to me with her hand raised. I looked up, confused, pulled my headphones back, and she said, like a coach or something, working on your paper? Good job to you. High five. You better believe I high-fived that child in her pre-ripped Def Leppard shirt and her itty-bitty Doc Martens. For I love, I delight in unequivocally pleasant public physical interactions with strangers. What constitutes pleasant, it's no secret, is informed by my large-ish male and cisgender body, a body that is also large-ish male, cisgender, and not white. In other words, the pleasant, the delightful are not universal. We should all understand this by now. 
A few months ago, walking down the street in Umberte in Italy, a trash truck pulled up beside me and the guy in the passenger seat yelled something I couldn't understand. I said, como? The Spanish word for come again, which is a ridiculous thing to say because even if he had come again, I would not have understood him. He knew this and hopping out of the truck to dump in a couple cans, he flexed his muscles, pointed at me and smacked my biceps hard, twice. I loved him. Or when a waitress puts her hand on my back or my shoulder, forget if she calls me honey, baby even better. Someone scooting by puts their hand on my back, the handshake, the hug, I love them all. Once I was getting on a plane and shuffling down the aisle, I saw sitting at the front of coach, reading the magazine, my great uncle Earl. I got down on my knees and put my hand on his forearm and I said, Uncle Earl, it's me, Ross. He looked at me kind of quizzically as did the woman traveling with him who did not look one bit like my Aunt Sylvia, which made me look back at my not Uncle Earl who looked maybe like my Uncle Earl's second cousin about 20 years ago. And though it was benign and no one was hurt, it was a little weird and they looked confused. All the same, given his Uncle Earl died about six months later, I'm delighted I got to see him and touch him gently, lovingly, about a thousand miles away. And I'm going to read, I think, two more of these, and I think that would be about right. As I recall that, I mean, it was real. I really, he was my Uncle Earl, and I got down on my knees, and I touched him, and I said, Uncle Earl. <laughs> Hey, Uncle Earl. He was like, who the hell are you? But it was pleasant. It was pleasant for me. I don't know, I don't know about that. Uh, this one is called um, Tomato on Board. Tomato on Board. What you don't know until you carry a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane is that carrying a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane will make people smile at you almost like you are carrying a baby, a quiet baby. I did not know this until today, carrying my little tomato about three or four inches high in its four inch plastic starter pot, which my friend Michael gave to me, smirking about how I was going to get it home. Something about this at first felt naughty, not comparing a tomato to a baby, but carrying the tomato onto the plane. And so I slid the thing into my bag while going through security, which made them pull my bag for inspection. When the security guy saw it was a tomato, he smiled and said, I don't know how to check that. Have a nice day. But I quickly realized that one of its arms, which I almost wrote as one of its stems, which I almost wrote as arms, was broken from the jostling, and it only had four of them, so I decided I'd better just carry it out in the open. And a shower of love began. It was a shower of love I also felt while carrying a bouquet of lilies through the streets of Rome last summer. People, maybe women especially, maybe women my age-ish or older especially, smiling with approval. A woman in a house dress beating out a rug on a balcony shouted to me, Bravo! An older couple holding hands both smiled at me and pulled into each other, knitting their fingers together. My showers might have been disappointed to know I was not giving the lilies to a sweetheart, but to my friends, Damiano and Moira, who had translated a couple of my poems into Italian and were so kind as to let me stay at their place a couple nights while I was passing through. On the way to the vegetarian restaurant Damiano's ex-wife owns with her partner, we walked by what I'm pretty sure he said was the biggest redbud tree in the world. It stretched for yards, lounging periodically onto the mossy earth, its beautiful black bark glistened by streetlights. Though translation is an act of love, so my showers needn't be disappointed at all. Before boarding the final leg of my flight, one of the workers said, nice tomato, which I don't think was a come on. And the flight attendant asked about the tomato at least five times, not exaggeration, every time calling it my tomato. Where's my tomato? You didn't lose my tomato, did you? How's my tomato doing? She even directed me to an open seat in the exit row, 
why don't you guys go sit there and stretch out? I gathered my things and set the little guy in the window seat so she could look out. When I got my water, I poured some into the little guy's soil. When we got bumpy, I put my hand on the little guy's container, careful not to snap another arm off. And when we landed and the pilot put the brakes on hard, my arm reflexively went across the seat, holding the little guy in place, the way my dad's arm would when he had to brake hard in that car without seatbelts to speak of in one of my very favorite gestures in the Encyclopedia of Human Gestures. And I think I'll do one more. Maybe I'll do two more. This is a real short one. It's kind of like a poem. It's called Firefly. Just beyond the pear tree, already wealthy with sun-blushed fruitlets, is an alcove of trees, a dense black screen made by the walnuts and maples that is, for these lucky weeks, pierced by the lumen tummied bugs, one of which landed on my neck earlier today, crawling down my arm to my hand, balancing itself when I brought it closer by throwing open the bifurcated cape its wings make. How common a creature it seems before its cylindrical torso starts glowing intermittently, at which point it is all of strangeness and beauty in one small body. What's the opposite of anthropomorphism? That's what I mean to do. I have a strong memory, I wonder if it's true, of my father taking my brother and me to the dusty fields behind Longmeadow Apartments, where we lived for a year, to look at the moonless black night being pierced by fireflies or lightning bugs, depending on where you live. I can feel my small hand in my dad's big hand, mesmerized by the show which I don't think I knew was made by bugs. There is some profound lyric lesson in witnessing an unfathomably beautiful event in the, dark, in the dark night, an event illegible except for its unfathomable beauty while leaning your head into your father's hip, which probably smelled of cavatini or Mexican pizza from his work at Pizza Hut. I don't know what the lesson is, but I'm certain of it. And let me do one more. This one is called Pulling Carrots. We were talking a little bit about the garden, gardening before we got on. And um, I just, it froze here last night. So I had to get all the sweet potatoes up and um, we're growing quite a few other like sort of, um, you know, plants that are root plants that actually don't want to, um, yacon were growing and some other stuff that I think you need to get them up right after it freezes. So, and, um, so anyways, like a day of gardening is a good day. But this is called pulling carrots. Today we pulled the carrots from the garden that Stephanie sowed back in March. She planted two kinds, a red kind shaped like a standard kind and a squat orange kind with a French name, a kind I recall the packet calling a market variety, probably because like the red kind, it's an eye catcher and sweet, which I learned nibbling a couple of both kinds, like Bugs Bunny as I pulled them. The word kind, meaning type or variety, which you have noticed I have used with some flourish, is among the delights, for it puts the kindness of carrots front and center in this discussion, good for your eyes, yummy, etc. In addition to reminding us that kindness and kin have the same mother, maybe making those to whom we are kind our kin to whom even those we might be. And that circle is big. These are kinds I am thinking as I snip the feathery green tops, making my way through the pile, holding the root in one hand, feeling the knobs and grains, the divots where they've grown against a rock or some critter nibble. Or the four or five of the red kind that have almost become two carrots, carrot legs in need of some petite pantaloon. The utterly forgettable magic of the carrot, which applies as well to the turnip and radish and potato and garlic and onion and ginger and turmeric and yam and sunchoke and shallot and salsify and maca and sweet potato, is that because much of the food resides under the ground, it probably had to be discovered, uncovered, 
And after the discovering and the uncovering, choosing which ones to replant and 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 replant until there was the long red kind I'm brushing the soil from, until the squat kind piling up at the bottom of the basket. It was kindness. They are our family. Thank you. Unmute and uh, clap. I always feel like hear it. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, Ross. Thank you. Um, anybody, let's open it up for questions. Yeah. So, first of all, Ross, I just want to say thank you so much. I'm an oceanographer, and this is like an event that is well outside of the way that I usually um, spend my Wednesday nights. And I just am absolutely floored by your talent and am just so happy that I got to spend the hour this way. Um, listening to your words and the the gratitude poems like I can't wait to go order your book the second I get off of this call because what a great time to sort of be thinking about the way that these small little moments in our life can be things that we're grateful for so the first thing I wanted to say was just thank you because um, I was truly touched by everything that you were saying so thank you um, I did have a question, which is that, you know, you selected a couple of moments of gratitude to share with the group. And I was wondering how you were deciding which moments to share. Like, do you always, when you speak to groups, share the same moments because they are the ones that you find most striking? Or do you just flip through the book and you're grateful for everything? So you, um, <laughs> you know, it's a random yeah. draw that night. So it was just something I was wondering. That's a great question. I try to get a feel for the group, you know, and it's um, like, for instance, like um, the introduction made me think, um, oh, I want to read a little bit from Beholding. You know, I wasn't thinking that I was going to read from Beholding. Um, but then from that introduction, I thought, oh, let me try to do that. And then actually the feeling was then after reading what I read, I thought, okay, let me, let me read after that, a, a, you know, a, another poem that's sort of, you know, in a way it's sort of intuitive, but there are trees, it was Philadelphia. It was also, you know, we walked, you know, we're near, in my head, near a basketball, you know, they actually take place very close to each other. Um, so it's a little bit of like kind of feeling it, a little bit intuitive, you know, but it was all, it was all set off by Amra. Um, so you can think. <laughs> but then you know i do have these um essays there's you know i'll go through ebbs and flows like there are times where i don't there are certain essays i don't read frequently or i'll like they'll go away for a little while and they'll come back um and i think part of that is just like a, a part of having a book with 102 essays in it you know so that there are some i just kind of forget to read and then you know and sort of recently that carrots one has been in my mind and but um, but yeah, I love that question. Thank you for that question. I try to be able to listen. You know, one of the metaphors that I use is being able to listen to what I don't yet know how to hear, you know, and which in a way feels a little bit like that, like you're kind of waiting for the thing to be to be offered to you. Um, and and part of the waiting, of course, is like, you know, for me, it's like rereading and rereading and rereading and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and, rewriting and then it feels like, ah, oh. <laughs> like today I had this moment where I've been working on this essay nonstop for two weeks. And I thought I was getting pretty close to it. And then I was revising it. I was going to read reading the whole thing today. And I was like, oh, that's the crack in the essay right there where the grief comes in. You know, that's the crack. And that's actually what the whole thing is about. And that kind of resolves this book maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but it felt like a kind of labor that you could also call listening that occasioned this thing voice to come in mm. and uh, but i feel like when i'm when i'm at at my best and when i'm most sort of tuned in it does feel like you're i'm listening to something and again it's not listening purely like like without um it's like collaborative listening yeah it's like collaborative listening yeah working on hearing something something like that but yeah, that that book of essays, it was just like like oh, do it for a year, try that, you know. 
Yes. Hi, my name is Sina. I'm a sophomore from Stonehill College. I found your book, I found your essay, especially from the Book of Delights, A High Five from a Stranger, really interesting. You know how you, you mentioned that that white girl kind of just said, like, hey, good job, you're working on your essay. Usually you, you enjoy, like, in physical interaction with strangers. But do you ever take that from her, especially as mockery? Or did you just take it as, oh, she's just, like, saying, hey good job you're doing your essay and it's just like kind of congratulating you yeah yeah you know i'm the kind of person i'm a little bit you wouldn't know it because i'm the guy who wrote the book of delights but you would you wouldn't know it but i'm a little bit like what are you doing right now or i'm a little bit like am i being filmed right now like is this a joke yeah that's what yeah <laughs> you know um etc 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 all the other things which also means i think i'm a pretty good reader of when a kid is just like yo you're and I was like, this child actually thinks I'm just doing my homework right now. And, you know, I, there was nothing sweeter that had ever happened in my life. You know, you know, a lot, a million things have been as sweet, you know, <laughs> but it was just the sweetest thing. You know, it was just like, you know, I could, I knew it was just like, man, no, this kid's just happy for me. She's like applauding me for applauding someone who could be her dad, you know, basically <laughs> kind of like doing, doing his homework, I guess. And I was pumped. I was just pumped. All right. Um, hi, I'm Kyla. I'm a freshman here. And I, I also have two questions. Um, one of which is, what advice would you give to people who are going through like their own like personal struggles that just ha so happen to like, happen? It could be like, daily struggles or it could be something that um, people have been going through for like a while. Mm. You know, um... I'm a little bit shy to give advice, but, I, but I'll like say to the extent that it's possible to sort of um, uh, practice to the extent that it's possible. Um, if we're able to sort of practice witnessing the ways that we are cared for, you know, in the midst of what is, you know, often profoundly sorrowful, which I, I tend to call life, uh -huh. um, I feel like that can help. And I feel like sometimes it's, it's, it's very difficult to do, which is partly why that point of that book is a sort of practice, is to practice that in the midst of profound sorrow, to practice still being able to articulate, witness and articulate what it is that I love or what it is that I'm grateful for. Um, but I also think because sometimes it's, it feels more difficult than an individual can bear at a certain time. I feel like it's lucky to have people who can kind of be like, do help you do it, you know, help, you know, if someone's, you know, really having a hard time, it feels like, you know, it's, it's nice if someone can be like, hey, the birds are singing today. You don't have to do anything about it. You don't have to do anything about it, but they are. Um, my second question is, how often would you say that you write just like, like free time? Or is it like a set time of day? Or is it just a whenever you feel like it? Yeah, I don't have like a real kind of tight schedule, writing schedule. But I do, I do, um, like I don't write from 8 to 12 every day or anything like that. I've tried that. It's not really my style. But like when I'm in a thing, I any second I can, like I'm working on a thing. So once I hop off of this, I'm going to get back to that essay I was talking about, trying to figure it, like getting a little crack in. Um, yeah, it's, so when it's hot, it's like, you know, if I can, it's all day, whenever, you know, <laughs> I'll be walking down the street working on an essay, you know. And then there's times when I'm like, I'm not really thinking about that, you know, I'm like reading and playing basketball and thinking about the garden or whatever, you know. Hi, um, I'm Ariana. I'm a sophomore at Stonehill. Um, and I'm taking actually African-American literature with Mr. Iskovitz. He's on the chat. <laughs> um, so we read a lot of your work today and I was really inspired by it. Um, my mom always talks about gratitude and how it's like important to show gratitude. So I was just wondering, is there someone in your life that really inspired you to show more gratitude? That's a good question. I don't know if, um, I don't know if I've been, um, I don't know about explicitly, but 
you know, but but implicitly, you know, like, um, and I wasn't thinking about it, but like my papa, for instance, my father's, my mom, my nana, and my papa, my both of my my dad's both ends both. My papa gave the longest prayers over dinner. I mean, it was just you know, dude went on for like you know ever ever and. You know, if all of us, like all 103 people were at the dinner table, he's going to talk about every single one of you, you know, and that's who my father was. And he'd be grateful for you. And then he'd like, you know, wish you well on whatever test you had or whatever, like game you had coming up or this and that. And, you know, when I was a kid, I was just like, you know, hungry, just like, man, come on, the food's going to go. But now I'm like, he was such a kind of model practicing a kind of gratitude. Like, you know, the fact that we are all here together in a given space, it, is, it will happen one time in this way. So let us pay attention to it. Let us be grateful to it. You know, he, that's one of the things that he was doing. This food itself, it is not guaranteed. Like, let us be grateful for it. You know, our health, you know, it's not guaranteed. Let's be grateful for it. So all those things, you know, my papa was really, he was really good at that. In his old age, I didn't know him as a, as a young man. I heard he was a much more complicated young fella. Um, but the guy I knew, he was like this long ass prayer. So I'll say him, but you know, a lot of, a lot of people who in their ways, whether or not they were calling it gratitude, you know, a lot of people were sort of modeling how to, how to be aware of, of what it is that you've been given. Yeah. Thank you for that question. So I have a couple of questions for you. Um, one of them if there's one thing that you know your readers could get out or could get out of it of your work, what would that be? What do you hope that would be from reading your work in general? And then the other question is, I know you talked about how you don't have a set time writing, but how do you deal with a writer block? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good hard question. If there's, you know, among the things, but I'll say this right now, if there's something that I've excited people come away from my work with, you know, in addition to the, to the possibility that it might people might make people um, inclined to feel generous and, and loving toward other people like that, that that's an aspiration. But I would also say like, maybe part of what I'm trying to do in my work is to like pay very close attention. I'm trying to point at stuff. I'm just trying to point, you know, and be like, and in a, in a certain kind of way, I suspect it's for myself, but I, in my in being doing it for myself, I'm trying also to offer it as a possibility of like what it means to point at what you love and and wonder about what you love and share what you love, you know. And if 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 this work at all in some way makes people curious about that perspective set of actions to like note what you love, think about what you love, and share what you love. I, I will, I will feel like the luckiest person who ever lived, you know, and writer's block. Um, <laughs> two things. One is that, you know, I do like to try to have a bunch of stuff going on at once. So we're going to poems, we're going to essays, like I write letters to friends. That's always a very good way if I'm not able to like handwritten written letters. Um, but I also will say this, that I used to spend a lot of time telling people I didn't get writer's block. And then I realized one time what I had an assignment, like from a magazine or like a review or something, and I just couldn't do it, I couldn't do it. And I realized anytime I get assignments, I get writer's block. <laughs> and the stuff that I write outside, you know, the stuff that is my procrastination work is fucking brilliant. You know, I'm brilliant. <laughs> when I procrastinate, I'm like, it just starts rolling, you know. But the stuff that I need to get done, I'm, I'm totally blocked. I can't do it. So that's all to say that, you know, as I grow up, like if I'm lucky, I try to have less assignments, but to the extent that I have assignments, I try to figure out how to make those assignments precisely actually what I, or as much as possible, what I want to be thinking about and writing about anyway, you know? So that's what I'll say. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm a freshman at Stonehill College. And my question was, I noticed you mentioned a, have a bunch of basketball references in your work. And I wasn't here earlier in the call, so I was wondering if you actually like were an athlete and what lessons helped guide you in your career right now. Oh, great! Yeah, 
I was. I played college football, and um, and I and I'm like a I'm a basketball guy. Like I like basketball way more than I like football, but that's what paid the bill. But I um I, you know, I probably played two or three times a week. Right now, I'm in a nice one-on-one workout with a, a kid who's a kid. He's 35, but he's fit. We play full court one-on-one, and we'll play like you know, 25 points, kind of like three-quarter speed, and then we pick it up, and then we try to get up to high. <laughs> <laughs> and um and uh I love it. God, I, I just love basketball. You know, I think about it, I kind of theorize about it. I'm deeply the basketball, the the poem that I was reading from is like a deep sort of engagement and kind of theorizing what basketball is too. But the I'll say the lessons that I learned from sport that have sort of applied. You know, you asked sort of what lessons I've, you know. And I think among the lessons, and it comes through a little bit in that Dr. J poem is something about practice, you know? I love practice. And when I say I love practice, I don't, you know, and I love and I love actually the way Alan Iverson talks about practice. When he says we talk about practice, we talk about practice, really, we're talking about practice. Because in a way, what I sort of think that he's theorizing in that, in that, you know, response to a writer's question, he's really sort of saying everything is practice. Like you think, just what we do on the court is practice, you know, for two hours every day, whatever. But I think Iverson's saying everything we do is practice, you know. And as a writer, that's sort of what I think. It's a little different as an athlete, you know, because, you know, like you don't, you know, taking a nap under the black walnut tree might not necessarily make you a better foul shooter. Might not, you know. But rest makes you a better player. You know, appropriate rest makes you a better player. But as a writer... And I think as a person and a, and a thinker and a person and a student, I think taking a nap underneath the black walnut tree does make you do better, you know? And, and having a moving, a loving conversation with someone you know or do not know makes you a better writer, makes you a better student, makes you a better, you know? And being able to, you know, closely watch the bird that's sitting on the, on the railing, to be able to really describe that. That's practice. And I think that makes you a better writer and a better student and probably, probably, a, you know, a better, a better person. You know, it just flew out of my mouth one time. It's funny, like to, a little bit back to Anwar's question. Um, no, or no, it wasn't Anwar's question. It's a person before Anwar. Um, but about um, gratitude. And it just flew out of my, out of my mouth to this kid kid I'm playing basketball with um and I said he's good at gratitude and I said I think in order to write poems you have to be able to to be grateful and I think I think you know that's a great gratitude is a complicated is a complicated emotion and a complicated state but I also but I do think and I don't mean be grateful that we let you be here I don't mean that that that's called coercion what I mean is um the trees right now, the trees, wherever you are, are providing for your life, you know. The soil, in fact, is providing for your life, you know. The, you know there are people who came before us who, who, are, who have provided for your life, you know, our lives. And I feel like to be able to sort of be in a persistent state of trying to acknowledge that, trying to acknowledge that, trying to acknowledge that, that feels like a practice. And it feels like a practice that would guide one to a meaningful life, you know, I don't, you know, in terms of like success or anything like that, who knows what that is, but meaningfulness is actually, I think that might be a, the proper measure of success. And the meaningfulness being that you understand that, oh, I'm connected. I'm connected and I'm held and, you know, I, I sort of, I sort of am, am part of this thing, you know. Um, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And, you know, and that's part of the, that's part of, when we feel sort of profoundly and unmovably sorrow, I think so often it's because we feel alone, but gratitude makes us feel um, less alone. So thank you for that great question. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Carol, is that right? Hi, um, I just had a quick uh, question, a comment and a quick question. My name is Carol Ann. I actually work in counseling services at Stonehill. And um, first of all, I. I love the incorporation of basketball into the poetry. I am a huge fan and I'm going to keep it brief because Celtics just tipped off. But, uh, but my question is for someone that writes about gratitude and incorporates it, um, you know, we all have those days where 
for the most part, we can keep things in perspective and see how blessed we are. And um, when the little things happen that maybe throw us off, we can keep it in perspective. But on those days that are a little harder to maybe be grateful, how do you handle that? And does that ever affect your writing if you are maybe having um, some struggles? Mm. I suspect it does. You know, I'm not sure exactly how it does, but I suspect it does affect my writing. I feel like I wonder now that you say that question, that's a great question. I feel like I wonder if if part of my right without without me having acknowledged it yet until now, because of your question, if part of my writing practice itself is a kind of practice of gratitude. You know, I wonder if that's the case. And you know, um, not only because of the subject matter or whatever, but but itself is in some way a way of sort of trying to connect to connection itself. Um, I think it might be the case. Thank you. Um, the other thing I would say is that, um, like I said before, I feel like one to have a practice that all that sort of like when when oneself can't sort of do it, the practice sort of helps us get through it. Or the, the you know, if I can't do it myself, well, it's the practice. I just kind of do, go through the motions of the practice of gratitude, or the practice of. What I like to think of as the practice of entanglement, you know, witnessing the ways that I am, I am made possible, or that I am held, or that all those things. And thinking a lot about this, I'm writing about this in, in more sort of in deeper ways, you know, longer breath ways. But, but again, I really do feel like you know one of those practices of being beholden to one another is like when it is feels impossible to, to, do it, if we have other people who can help us do it, you know. And that, in a way, sort of feels like, you know, it's it's so kind of, it's so kind of unpuritan to say it, but to be sort of radiant in our need, and to have people who are able to sort of, when you are in the midst of your need, who are like, I'm here, because that's what we do for each other, you know. We're all needy sometimes. We're all needy all the time, but sometimes it's more florid than other times, you know, and. It's you know it's very hard I think to sort of do that but but that's a that's a practice I'm trying to sort of trying to incorporate into my life being needy being needy <laughs> so yeah thank you for all those questions it's really good to talk to you yeah.